our scripture, scripture reading today is Acts 2, 14 through 36. If you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, even the day of the Lord, even the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men God raised him up, loosening the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would, not, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The word of the Lord. The book of Acts shows us what it means to aspire to be the faithful people of God. And Peter here gives testimony to what has occurred in Jesus Christ. It's really the first sermon of the church, the first accounting 
of how he's challenging his Jewish audience to understand what has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Peter has a considerable challenge uh, before him. You might think that this is an easy case to make, but already we see that that would be the wrong conclusion. In fact, in verses 12 and 13, which we actually considered last week, if you have a Bible, you can uh, look back at those two verses. We see that even in the midst of the miraculous event of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the people are confused. In verse 12, some of them don't know what to make of what is occurring. And in verse 13, some of them simply assert and mock that these people who gathered here are drunk. They're filled with new wine. And Peter's going to suggest that no, drunkenness isn't an adequate explanation. And indeed, something momentous is occurring here. In fact, Peter is going to be so audacious as to quote the prophet Joel and say that the last days have begun. They've started to unfold even in the middle of history in an unexpected fashion. Now, Peter, in order to make that argument, is going to have to significantly shift the frame of reference of the Jews gathered there because that was not the Jewish expectation. Now, Jews knew all about last days. Everyone was expecting that in the last days God would show up and raise everyone from the dead and would judge all people and then would move the world into a period of bliss because everything was under his authority. Everybody knew about the last days, but what Peter is suggesting is somewhat scandalous. He's saying the last days have begun because one man has been raised from the dead. One man has undergone judgment. And still, right, the last days are happening because the Spirit is being poured out. Now that would have been something that would be very difficult to swallow, very unexpected. Peter's challenging them to change completely their frame of reference but he's going to do so as a faithful witness, bearing claim to, to acknowledge things that God has done, not that he himself has done. And so it asks us and invites us to question, are we bearing faithful witness to what God has done? Not simply what we need to accomplish, but to what has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. The salvation that we offer to people is not, uh, is not something that we achieve or something that we explain um, with clarity, it's something that Jesus extends as we bear witness to what has been accomplished in him. And sometimes that does involve cause challenging someone or asking someone to change their frame of reference. And uh, to reflect a little bit on the passage today, I thought we would dialogue a little bit with those who are experts at changing your frame of reference. No one invests more time or energy or money than altering your frame of reference than do advertisers. This is their game, this is their business. And so how do they go about it and what do we learn and how does it help us to actually reflect or think about what Peter is doing? It was only in 1940 that the first television commercial aired. It was before the Brooklyn Dodgers played the Philadelphia Phillies and there was a short ad for Belova watches and socks. Some of you may even remember that commercial, I don't know. But that set the standard, really, for the next 60 years of advertising. But advertising didn't really get underway until the 1950s because Americans didn't have enough disposable income to pursue various goods. And so you can justify an ad campaign until Americans had enough disposable income to purchase things, to try to woo them, to purchase what you wanted to sell them. So advertising gets underway in the 1950s. By the 1960s, it's, uh, it's going bananas. 
And uh, in the 1960s and even in the 70s and 80s, the approach was to establish some kind of relationship, particularly between you and not just a product, but a character that embodied the product. And the character would communicate what the product would deliver to you. And so you might remember the Marlboro Man, considered one of the most successful ad campaigns in the history of advertising. The moody, masculine cowboy who's going about his business of doing whatever cowboys do, right, with a cigarette in his mouth and uh, a definition of masculinity. And you will be tough and macho, presumably, if you smoke Marlboro cigarettes. Now, what's interesting, do you know why Marlboro went in that direction? Well, at the time uh, the campaign started, it was considered effeminate to smoke a filtered cigarette. And Marlboro was trying to, to roll out their filtered cigarette and trying to woo an audience that wasn't purchasing them, which was men, by saying, oh, no, you've got it all wrong. You'll be outstandingly masculine if you smoke one of these cigarettes. And it worked brilliantly, right? Their scale skyrocketed as it captured the hearts and minds of potential buyers. But this was the initial approach to advertising, right? You identify with a certain character or representative that embodies what the product will deliver to you. Now, as you get to the late 80s and early 90s, that begins to change. People be, are becoming more skeptical that a company is really interested in me or will deliver what they say. And so advertisers have to be more uh, clever and creative in terms of reaching out to that audience. And so they begin to focus on a notion of community. And they begin to try to identify needs that they can speak to subtly without being overt couple quick examples. In 2007, there was an ad uh, by Cadbury, and it was notable because there was no mention of the name Cadbury anywhere in the ad. You couldn't even read it. It was simply a gorilla playing drums to Phil Collins in the air tonight in front of a purple background. And some people thought, well, that's wasted dollars. Except that the next day at the water cooler, everyone's talking about the gorilla playing drums. They're saying, what is that even an ad for? Who put that out? And over 300 spoofs of it would be made as people wanted to do different things with it online. So it was constantly in front of people. And everybody knew that, you know, discovered that it was Cadbury and thought it was so cool. And so if you happen to be one of those people, like the rest of the entire human population, that thinks you're not as cool as you would like to be, and everybody around you is talking about this ad in Cadbury, well, you might just subtly think, not even necessarily consciously to yourself, I need a little Cadbury in my life. I'm going to be a little bit cooler. If this is what everybody's talking about, well, maybe I'll uh, be caught up in that if I eat some chocolate. Right? It's absurd when you say it out loud, but it's so effective. Right? It woos us in, changes our frame of reference, which is what Peter is having to do. Our Lowe's Fix and Six, it was a series of six-second advertisements Again, that didn't really mention Lowe's, but identified a common household problem and showed you the solution. And so you Google some problem, you see this, this is brilliant. Who are these people who care so much about the problems that I have every day in my household that they would put this together and find the solution for me? Oh, it's the people at Lowe's? Well, I trust those people. I'm going to go buy what I need to do this solution at home. And so people were wooed in and have a sense of, uh, oh, the company is actually for me. And they help me solve my problem. They're not. That's a real problem. I had it before I even met Lowe's, and Lowe's is helping me to solve it. So they're not just selling me a bill of goods. 
And so advertising begins to develop in these ways. But it hits a real roadblock. Some of you are in the advertising world, and I didn't realize what a significant roadblock this was. In fact, one um, kind of expert in advertising said, advertising has had to change more in the last 20 years than in the previous 2000. And I thought, well, that seems like a crazy statement. Why in the world would you say that? And you might think, well, the advent of the Internet, but it's not that. It's the advent of ad blocking. Right? You're the first people in the history of, of modern advertising that have the opportunity to intentionally block all their efforts, right? So just think about Netflix. You're willing to pay money so that you don't have to sit through ads. You will download software that protects you from ads. You'll choose options, right, that protect you from having to endure that. Well, this is a big deal. In 2015 alone, it's estimated that it costs publishers $22 billion of lost advertising revenue because those traditional streams of advertising are no longer thought to be effective, right? Because they can't get to you. Not only that, but some of you are millennials. I, I'm too old to be a millennial, but I'm close. And I forget the actual cutoff. Zach's a millennial. So if you, want, if you understand the problems and dysfunctions of millennials, <laughs> you can just talk to Pastor Zach. So one of the big problems with Pastor Zach and his generation, <laughs> this is fun. We didn't do this the first service. I see a lot of potential here this morning, uh, is millennials are phenomenally skeptical, right? Perhaps some would argue the most skeptical generation in the history of the modern world. And if you tell them that you, you, they need your product, no way. Who are you? I don't trust you. You're the man. I'm not going to buy what you're trying to sell me. And so millennials will do all of this research. Either they have to hear about something from a friend who they trust, or they'll go and read blogs, and they'll, they'll go through all the reviews at the end, which I can't stand doing. I guess I'm not a millennial. All the reviews at the end of products on Amazon or something say, oh, well, these are real people giving me a real account of the value of this product, and then based on that, I'll decide to buy it or not. So advertisers find themselves in this place of how do we really change someone's frame of reference when they don't overtly trust us initially? How do we, how do we consider that? Now, I want to I hit pause on advertising for a minute. We're going to come back and answer that question about how advertisers are trying to move forward and uh, the gross dysfunction of all millennials. Uh, but before we do that, we need to do business with our passage. But I do want you to be thinking of what Peter is doing in terms of, you know, he's not, he's not an advertiser per se, right? But Peter is having to make a case for something that is unprecedented, and he's having to say to the Jewish audience that is gathered there, listen, you need to totally rethink everything you have thought up to this point in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Right? It's, a, it's a profound change of reference. And Peter relies on three basic arguments, right, which we need to take stock of each one of them. He's going to start with a reference to the Scriptures. So if you look as, um, as Peter is working through, he's going to say, indeed, drunkenness is not an adequate explanation of what's happening here. Brothers, it's 9 a.m. in the morning, and uh, it's nobody's drunk. Instead, let me explain to you what's happening by appealing to the prophet Joel. So you can look at verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Now, this is a remarkable passage to quote from the prophet Joel. Not only in the sense that this notion of the spirit being poured out 
on everyone. You don't have to be a prophet or a priest or a king in God's redemptive history to get the Spirit now. All people are receiving the Spirit, but it's associated. When will it happen? It will happen in the last days. So Peter is saying that the Scriptures are being fulfilled, and this is the beginning of the last days. We're not going to be at the end of the last days for a long time, but what Peter is saying is God, in a surprising fashion to all of us, has yanked the future into the present. Right? He's, what we thought would happen at the very end of time has happened in the middle of time in the life of one person. Where judgment would come to all, one has stood judgment for all. Where uh, we would perish, one has perished on our behalf, and where all would be raised to life, one has been raised to life as a promise that we will be raised to life. Right? So the end times have begun and that Jesus has appeared in the middle of history and ushered this in. And Peter says, you know this because the Spirit is being poured out in your midst. Right? This, pro- this prophecy of Joel is being uh, fulfilled. Now, Peter surely could have only gotten to this place by having been informed by the teachings of Jesus. And there are numerous places right, that tell us that once Jesus had been raised from the dead, he walked with the disciples and the apostles and he taught them how to read the scriptures and understand that he was the fulfillment of everything that had been spoken. And so here you have Peter suddenly appealing to these, what might be even considered obscure in some ways, Old Testament texts and saying, no, these are what teach us that Jesus has arrived to fulfill the scriptures. Jesus isn't an anomaly. We've just misread the scriptures in terms of informing our expectation. He will go on to say the same thing when he quotes the psalm where David uh, speaks of his flesh not being given over to corruption, uh, Peter says, well, that doesn't really make sense if you think about it because we all know that David is in the grave. So David must have been speaking about Jesus. And then he quotes Psalm 110.1, which is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And he says, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Well, if David is the king of Israel, and he says, the Lord Yahweh said to my Lord, who's he talking about? There's no Lord above King David in the Old Testament. This, again, is another prophecy looking forward to Christ. So Peter says, listen, we, we've read the Old Testament wrong in some ways, and we have to reread it in light of Christ. And when we do reread it, we realize that this isn't, isn't actually a surprise or, or shouldn't necessarily be a surprise because this has been God's plan and agenda all along. This is where God has been heading. The scriptures have foretold this. So this is Peter's first argument in terms of changing the frame of reference of the audience gathered there. His second frame of reference is to remind the people who are gathered that they're actually witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. So uh, you might place yourself for a moment in the shoes of one of the Jews who are gathered there. And Peter says, well, we need to reread the scriptures. And you say, okay, Peter, I'm going to bite for the moment. We'll reread the scriptures a bit. Uh, But, you know, we still get to this really hard part that you say the Messiah has come and has ushered in all these great things. Uh, But when we look at the story of Jesus, we see him hanging on a cross. And Peter says, okay, that's fair, and I'm so glad you've gone there because that's exactly where we need to go. Let's talk about Jesus dying. In verses 23 and 24, Peter will say, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
in such a fascinating and succinct, you can hardly find a more profound statement of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Peter says in one sentence, this was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God that Jesus would be crucified. In the same sentence, he says, but you killed him by the hands of lawless men. And we have this mystery that this is, this is where God has been going all along, not to say that we aren't responsible, nor are those who killed Jesus responsible for their actions. And then Peter goes on to say, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now this verse 24 is beautiful. It's beautiful because the word pangs there is almost exclusively used for the pangs of childbirth. And what Peter is saying is, no more could the pains of childbirth uh, hold back the arrival of an infant than the pains of death could hold back the resurrection of Jesus. It was impossible for him to be held by death because he did not warrant death. Now, do you understand right, the, the backdrop of Peter's argument that he's making to these people? If Jesus has been raised from the dead, that means he didn't deserve to die. God has vindicated him. If he didn't deserve to die, that means he didn't really have sin because death is the result of sin. And if he didn't have sin, that means he was the Messiah. Because only the Messiah comes forth in righteousness as God's holy and anointed one to rescue us, that salvation will be found in the name of the Lord. Now, so Peter acknowledges, yes, Jesus has died. You might think that's problematic, but you need to remember he's not dead. He's been raised from the dead, and in that he's been vindicated. And so in verse 32, Peter says this, Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. What a, what a profound claim. What a claim that should encourage all of us in our faith. Because in the midst of the audience that was alive during the death and resurrection of Jesus, Peter lays it out as baldly as he possibly can and says, listen, you're witnesses. Jesus isn't dead. He's been raised from the dead. You've seen him resurrected. Now, that would be an insane, preposterous claim if it wasn't true. What would have kept everyone gathered there that day from saying, yeah, well, okay, Peter, right? We know nobody except the 12 has seen this risen Jesus. We're going to go back to synagogue. We're quite happy with Yahweh. Thank you. But that's not exact at all what happens. What happens is the biggest sociological movement in the history of the world, which is spawned by what? People who said, yeah, you're right. We've seen Jesus risen from the dead. We are witnesses. It's the historicity, the historical fact of the resurrection that moves the inexplicable growth and explosion of the early church, the people who would lay down their lives to tell the story of Jesus. And so it is the second, right? I want you to know where we are, right? Peter begins by saying scriptures have been fulfilled. Prophecy has been fulfilled in Jesus, argument number one. Argument number two, you're witnesses of the resurrection. And if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then he's got to be Messiah. And he goes on to argument number three, which is you have seen and heard, you have experienced the work of the Spirit. Look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This outpouring of God's Spirit, you are seeing and hearing. You're experiencing it. What do you make of it? We all recognize that drunkenness is not an explanation that works 
for what is occurring. But you have this notion of Peter extending God's invitation of Scripture, which is come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. In the midst of this Pentecostal experience, what do you taste? What do you see? It's your experience that the Spirit of God has actually been poured out. And so Peter, thus, can arrive at his conclusion in verse 36. It's a pretty profound conclusion for the people of God at this time. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him but Lord in Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Yes, he's the one you crucified. He's the one that hung on a cross. And that's a very surprising aspect of the story that really, frankly, nobody saw coming. But as a result of the scriptures being fulfilled, as a result of we bearing witness to his resurrection that death could not hold him, and as a result of the outpouring of the Spirit, also the fulfillment of prophecy, we cannot but conclude that this crucified man is Lord in Christ. Lord being a term that would have been reserved in Judaism exclusively for Yahweh. You see the high Christology upon which the church will come to understand that Jesus is actually God in the flesh. It's a profound statement, a profound announcement based on these reasons that he has laid down to those who are gathered there. In essence, Peter's saying, listen, God has touched down. The last days have come because he's arrived. He's taken uh, the death that we all deserve. He's been vindicated in resurrection. And now, because we can be unified to him in faith, the Spirit can be poured out. And he is indeed both Lord and Christ. That's quite a conclusion. But that conclusion... Right? Isn't, isn't the whole story of what Peter is communicating, is it? Peter's making three very reasonable, sound arguments. But what's happening in the backdrop is the very argument of the transformation of Peter himself. This isn't the first time that Peter has grappled with the notion of the suffering and resurrection of the Messiah. But he's grappling with it in a very different way than he did at the first go-around. The first go-around is in Mark 8. And in Mark 8, Jesus and the disciples are walking down the road, and Jesus says to the disciples, Hey, who do people say that I am? And the disciples say, Well, some say you're Elijah, risen from the dead. Some people think you're John the Baptist, from the dead. There are multiple theories circulating. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, You're, you're the Christ. And Jesus said, <laughs> So it's a nice job. You didn't come to this conclusion on your own. God revealed it to you, but that's good. And then he proceeds forward to explain what it means that Jesus is the Christ. All right? Just poor Peter. If you weren't on the same page, Peter, this is what it means to be the Christ. I will suffer, I will die, and I will be raised three days later. To which Peter uh, says, that's not the way the story goes. That's not how the last days play out, and that's not, nope. And so Jesus has to rebuke Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're not committed to what God is doing here. You don't understand. But now you fast forward to Acts 2, and Peter is getting up in front of everyone and proclaiming, uh, this is Jesus the Christ, and he had to suffer. He had to be killed, and he rose three days later. He bears testimony out of a transformed heart going from a place in which he absolutely opposed that story to one in which he advocates that this is the most important story ever told to those who are gathered there. He becomes a witness bearer. He tells a testimony that is not simply 
cognitive ideas or arguments, but he says, no, I've come to know and be transformed by this story. And I find myself formerly opposing it and now embracing it, embracing it to the degree that it will become my story and I will die as a martyr. When we think about what it takes to communicate today, it's no small task. If the millennials are the most skeptical audience uh, going, what advertisers have learned or have realized that they have to do is uh, no longer will they believe a direct proposition from some kind of institution. And so what they do is they try to co-opt an average, average people and develop a faithful following that will bear testimony on their behalf of the quality of their product. So perhaps the best example of this or the easiest one is GoPro, right? The camera that you can attach anywhere and do all kinds of uh, cool stuff and then share that. GoPro's ad campaign is essentially uploading videos of people who have used the camera. They're not making a commercial that tells you the cool things you can do. They say, look, look what your friend's done. Listen to the testimony of this guy who is, you know, uh, snowboarding in the Rockies and taking a film of it. That's what you will believe, and that's why you will, you'll get excited about what then you can capture. Or of late, Patagonia has uh, started a new campaign which has surprised people, and uh, essentially they've said you can, if you did this in the 1960s, you would have been considered crazy. And you may have uh, seen their campaign. It basically invites you to take any Patagonia product that you've loved and used but is worn out or broken and send it back in to be repaired and sent back to you. In other words, Patagonia is saying, hey, don't go buy a new one. We'll fix your old one. We'll save you money. Some people say, well, that you don't want them buying more new of your stuff. And advertisers, though, assert Patagonia is being very smart because they're immediately building trust. Why would this company say this? That's a crazy claim. Unless their merchandise is really good and really reliable and they know it'll be okay. Well, suddenly I have a new level of trust in Patagonia products and am more inclined to buy them. Plus, the campaign itself is just stories of people who loved product A, loved it to death and wore it out, sent it in, and that product A is sent back to them, and their cherished possession, whatever it was, they have back, and they just tell that story, and people say, oh, these are just everyday people enjoying and expressing, giving testimony of the joy that Patagonia has brought them because of their trustworthiness. Paul will tell us that we are called to be ambassadors of reconciliation. That we are to be witness bearers to the very things that Peter is bearing witness of, that the scriptures have been fulfilled, that we, through their writings and through our own experiences, are witnesses of the resurrection, that we give testimony to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And do we actually give testimony? Do we give a testimony that is compelling in any way? And I'm, I'm not advocating that you have to have some special argument, but simply that you might go to a neighbor or simply you might rub shoulders with someone at work and say, you know, I don't know where you're at, but for me, for where I am and for what I understand, you know, I've really come to believe that this Jesus who is crucified He's Lord in Christ. And that may sound outlandish to you, but you know what? This is what it's done for me. This is how I've come to understand the scriptures. This is how I've come to witness the resurrection. This is how I've come to experience, to see and to hear the Spirit working 
his way in the midst of myself and in the midst of my community. You don't have to, it's not about winning some argument. It's simply about bearing witness to what Christ has done. Your words aren't salvation. Jesus is salvation. But if you don't give testimony to Jesus at all, then what salvation is being offered? And perhaps you need to take a step back and say, well, if I have no testimony to offer, if I'm not compelled to offer witness to the risen Christ, then maybe, maybe I need to go back to the scriptures and understand how they were fulfilled in Christ. And maybe I need to, to visit again the, the historical claim of the resurrection because if everyone who was gathered there that day who are the actual witnesses believed this was true and rearranged their life and went in a different direction as a result, maybe I need to reconsider the direction of my life and how much I actually believe that the resurrection is historical fact. Or perhaps I need to ask myself, am I really hearing or seeing the Spirit? Am I experiencing the Spirit in a way that I'm compelled? And maybe if not, maybe you need to go and say, you know, pray with the psalmist. Lord, return to me a joy of the, your salvation. Your spirit feels distant, and I don't, I don't know him, and I would like to see and experience such a thing. And in that, then to be equipped, right? Now, you can't ask for that and receive it and keep it inside because it will stop being given to you because it was always intended, right, your salvation to be extended through you we are the witness bearers and ambassadors of reconciliation. And if we do not act as ambassadors, then we no longer hold that office. So as you come to the table this morning, be encouraged. Encouraged that the scriptures are fulfilled. The historicity of the resurrection is represented in this bread and wine. And the Spirit has come to encourage you and equip you in your faith. Jesus, that one that they crucified and we crucified, he is both Lord and Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning. We thank you that you are our salvation. And we ask you to forgive us for the foolish ways in which we pursue salvation in other places. We also ask you to forgive us for the ways in which we fail to bear testimony. And in that we defeat our own faith. Because if we are not believing to an extent that we're willing to give testimony, then we realize we don't have much faith at all. So would you meet us and encourage our faith this morning? Holy Spirit, please come and feed us and help us to drink deeply, to be nourished and fed on you, and as a result, to go forth as faithful witness bearers. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.